Isaiah chapter 11, um, I mentioned last week as we got into our Advent series that a lot of Isaiah's prophecy um, is actually, it's not, it's not all like sunshine and rainbows, right? It's, uh, Isaiah is, is coming to uh, give this message that God had given him to give to the people, and it's not all pleasant. It's not all, you know, warm fuzzies. It's, uh, a lot of it is y'all have rebelled against God. You're, you're, you're not living right. You have forgotten the covenant of God, and as a result, God's judgment is, is coming. God's judgment, and that's not, it's not going to be comfortable for you. It's going to go very badly for, for you, and so um, again, it's, it's, a, it's a long Old Testament book, and a lot of it is, is kind of dark, but there are these sort of glimmers of, of hope. It's kind of sprinkled throughout. There's these sort of rays of light, like we talked about last week. And specifically in Isaiah, we get some of the most clear um, prophecies about the coming Messiah. Uh, some of these we, we kind of call in like our Christmas verses. They're very popular around Christmas time because they're talking about the, the coming king, the coming Messiah. And so um, a couple of those really quick you're very familiar with, but in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, you might remember Isaiah says this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. We hear that one at Christmas all the time, written 700 years before the birth of Christ. There's this promise of a, a baby that's going to be born. Then we looked at it last week, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, another very popular prophecy about, about the coming uh, Christ. Isaiah 9, verse 6, last week we said this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Very popular again around, might have got a, might have got a Christmas card with that one on it at some point, Right? Then we get to Isaiah 11, that's today's text, and once again, we have this prophecy about this coming Messiah. Specifically, in this prophecy in Isaiah 11, it's, it's essentially written as a poem, it's very poetic in the language, and he tells us that this baby that was to be born, this child that was to be given, is going to be a king, and he is going to have a kingdom. He's going to be a king, he's going to have a kingdom. And so what I wanted to do uh, this morning as we look at this text, we're going to look at like the first 12 verses of the text, and I want to kind of talk a little bit about this, this king and specifically then um, it's kind of the, the marks or characteristics of this particular kingdom, all right? So Isaiah 11 verse 1, we'll start there. Um, I'm just going to read this first verse and then unpack it a little bit. Here's what he says in Isaiah 11 verse 1. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, King David. That was his dad. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Um, again, sometimes we read these passages really quick and kind of skip over the, the deeper meaning, but here, here's kind of the picture. Isaiah starts this part of the prophecy, and the imagery that he gives us is a dead tree stump, okay? A dead tree stump. Um, and then he's going to say, out of this dead tree stump, there's this, there's this little shoot that begins to, that's going to that's gonna, that's gonna come forth. Um, out at our house, you know, obviously like everybody else, it was a long, hot, very dry summer. And out on our property, I had a number of trees that died this summer. I mean, just completely dead, lifeless, whole branches. I had one tree that just fell over. The whole tree just, just drove home one day and I'm like, there's a dead tree. So I, I've got to cut all this stuff up, you know, and um, we just had some dead trees. And so what I tried to do, and I'm, I'm cutting them down, is I try to cut them uh, as close to the ground as possible. But no matter how close I try to get, there's always like a bit of a stump left. 
And then I noticed something that, that happened. I thought about this verse, uh, and, and, like after I've cut them down, and we got some rains finally this fall. We got a little bit, of, little bit of rain. And then I would notice that there were some shoots. On some of them, there was a little shoot that would come up right, right at the base of it, or even some right on the stump. And it just came me this picture. This is what Isaiah is trying to say. Like, what we thought was dead, there's, there's a little glimmer of hope. There's a little bit of life left in the stump. Somewhere deep down in the root, it wasn't completely gone. And what he's talking about here is this. He's talking about this Davidic line, the, king, the, the, the kingdom through David's line, through, the, the, again, the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And Israel, they were kind of at the height of their power under King David. Okay? King David was always the most popular king of the Old Testament. He's the one that they always kind of looked back to, like the glory years. Those were the good, those were the glory years, back when David was our king and we were, economically, we were doing good and we were really following after the Lord and people's hearts were right. And, and, and man, there weren't like all these outside um, armies that were going to like take us over and conquer us. And those were the good old days, right? So I know some of you, like right now, you're thinking back to a time when those were the good old days for you. They did the same thing back then. They were always looking back to the good old days. Those were, that was the best time. And then even after David, you had Solomon, his son. And again, the king, it was pretty good, pretty good uh, time during King Solomon as well. A lot of prosperity, a lot of growth. Things were, were going pretty well. But then after Solomon, things start to kind of go badly in that Davidic line. Kings after that weren't so great. You had a king named Rehoboam who was not great. I mentioned last week a king named Ahaz, who was basically like a wicked, awful, terrible, godless king. And so what you have then is all of the hope that was put in this Davidic line, now everybody's looking at it going, eh, I don't think that's going to work out. Like, that's not going to go so well. The kings have been bad. There's been God's judgment come. And so basically you're looking at this Davidic line of kings thinking that's where the Messiah, that's where the promised one's supposed to come. But it looks like it's a dry, dead stump. Like it looks pretty bleak. And so the prophecy here from Isaiah is that out of this apparently dead stump, out of the deadness, there's going to spring some new life. Sounds a little bit like resurrection, doesn't it? Out of what appeared to be dead, God was going to bring new life. And specifically, he's talking about, again, pointing to Christ, the Messiah, the Savior who would come through the line of David. And he is going to once again produce fruit. He's going to bring about a kingdom that we'll talk about here in a minute. So then in verse 2, he's going to tell us a little bit about this particular king. Um, And here's what he says. We read it a minute ago, verse 2. He's going to talk about the spirit of the Lord that will rest on him in kind of a a sevenfold way. And he says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so he talks about this, this idea that this king is going to possess and be filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Um, and again, I, I love this because if you look ahead to the Gospels, one of the things you'll see in the Gospels, particularly Luke's Gospel, Luke really shows us um, and, and sort of drives home this, this truth that Jesus was empowered by, filled with, operated in the Spirit of the Lord. It's one of the great emphasis in Luke's particular gospel, where he's reminding us that Jesus was filled with and empowered by the Spirit of God, literally fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah 11. That's what the king is going to be, filled with God's Spirit. And then these other verses we'll look at this morning, um, 
I want to talk a little bit about his kingdom. Jesus is the king. You've heard us sing songs about that. King of kings, Lord of lords. The king is going to have a kingdom. And so what he's going to do now, he's going to talk about how his future kingdom is going to be very different than the world in which they live. And so we'll break it down like this. Here's verse 3 and 4. He says that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what, he, what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. What he's talking about here is this idea of justice, that his kingdom is going to bring justice. I'll say it this way, in, in a world that is marked by injustice, God's kingdom is going to be marked by justice. In Isaiah's day and time, the poor... Um, they, they were, not only were they just not treated well, um, not only were they just ignored, um, kind of pushed to the side, um, they were literally taken advantage of in a number of different ways. Um, the, it had gotten to a place where, again, under King David, the poor were taken care of. There was certain programs for them to help them. And, and then you get to the, some, some other kings that just completely disregard them. And pretty soon the people start completely disregarding them and taking advantage of them in a number of ways. And so you get to this place where you're going to see this throughout Isaiah's prophecy. If you read the whole book, he's going he's gonna to hit, like, hit this idea uh, many, many times that God cares about the poor and the needy and the marginalized and the outcast. How we treat other people matters. How God's people treat other people absolutely matters. And then as you read through the Gospels, listen, you cannot read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You cannot read about the life and the ministry of Jesus and not see the uh, particular affinity that he had for the poor and the needy and the outcast and the marginalized of society. You, you simply can't do it. It's all over Scripture that Jesus cares about how people are treated. And in Israel's day and time, the poor were not treated well at all. There was injustice all around. And so simply what he's saying is that in a world that is marked by injustice, what Jesus' kingdom, this kingdom of this future king, there's going to be a revival of justice. How we treat the poor, the disadvantaged, the marginalized, it absolutely matters to God. It absolutely mattered to Jesus. In the next verse, in verse 5, he, uses, he mentions the word righteousness again for the second time. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. My second point is this, as you read through the prophecy, in a world that is marked by sinfulness, God's kingdom is going to be marked by righteousness. God's kingdom is marked by righteousness. Not only how we treat people matters to God, but how we live our lives matters to God. The choices we make and the way that we carry ourselves Righteousness matters to God. Now, here's the thing. If God's kingdom is marked by righteousness, God's people are marked by righteousness. At the same time, God's word tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. That's kind of a problem, isn't it? Look, we need righteousness. Like God's people, uh, they're full of righteousness. His kingdom is marked by righteousness. And yet scripture says that there is none righteous, no, not one. In fact, all we like sheep have gone astray, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a whole lot of text all through the Bible that basically talk about our unrighteousness and how unworthy we are, but then we're told that, you know, we should be marked by righteousness. And so this is the, the beauty of this. This is the beauty of the gospel, that you cannot, you cannot be righteous enough. 
You cannot earn your righteousness. You cannot earn your standing with God by doing all of the right things and avoiding all of the wrong things. Scripture's gonna say that our righteousness, so the best that we can muster, is like filthy, dirty rags before a holy God. And so again, this is the beauty of the gospel. God knows that. God knew that. God looked down and saw that you and I can't be good enough. We can never be good enough. I don't care how holy and pious you are. You can't be good enough. You can't be righteous enough to earn your way into God's kingdom. We need someone else to give us righteousness. And so this is what we celebrate at Advent, right? That God sends Jesus. He leaves heaven and he comes to earth and he lives among us. He lives the perfect sinless life that we could never live. And then one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says this, that God made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's good, isn't it? Martin Luther called that verse the great exchange, that God in Christ, he takes our sin Man, the the worst of who we are, every bad decision that we have made, um, every evil thought inside of our head, um, all of our sins of omission, all of our sins of commission, all of it, he takes our sin on himself. And in turn, guess what? We get his righteousness. He makes us clean. He makes us new. And so the only way that we are righteous, the only way that we are worthy for God's kingdom is placing our faith in Jesus who alone was righteous and gives us his righteousness. In a world that is marked by sinfulness, God's kingdom is marked by righteousness, and it's only through Christ that we are righteous. In the next text, he talks about another aspect of God's kingdom. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb... And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Now, that already sounds a little bit odd, doesn't it? Like, I don't know, when wolves and lambs hang out, it tends to go bad for the lamb, right? Like, when leopards and goats hang out, I don't want to be the goat, <laughs> okay? So, so um, already it, it sounds, sounds very different. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Another aspect of God's kingdom is that in a world that is marked by violence and hostility, God's kingdom is marked by peace. We talked about this a little bit last week. With, uh, and Isaiah 9 gives us the names of God, you know, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And we talked about how this would have been unbelievably good news to the nation of Israel who had known nothing but violence and war. Most of their history, violence and war. They are a people that had been conquered and, 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 and in captivity. And, and so for them to hear there's going to be a king, there's going to be this new uh, leader that's going to come along and he's going to usher in some peace That would have been unbelievably good news. In a world marked by violence and hostility, God's kingdom is marked by peace. And verse 9 kind of gives us the the key to it. How is that going to be? Well, it says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How are we going to have peace? Well, everyone's going to know Jesus. 
Everyone's going to worship Jesus. Paul says at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. So one day in God's kingdom, he is king. No one else is king. Nothing else is king. Only King Jesus. And so there's going to be this peace because we're all worshiping and serving and following after walking with the Prince of Peace. You've heard it said before, the only way you're going to have peace in this life, peace in this world, is by walking with knowing the Prince of Peace. And I know that, again, you can watch the news right now and see that there are multiple wars going on all over our planet. And I don't care how many, you know, peace treaties we sign. It doesn't matter, you know, how many ceasefires we have. Again, apart from knowing Christ, apart from the Prince of Peace, um, we're never going to see peace. We're never going to see this. The key to God's kingdom is that everyone knows the Lord. Everyone's walking with the Lord. And in a world that is marked by violence and hostility, God's kingdom is going to be marked by peace. And then finally, in verses 10 through 12, he mentions another aspect of God's kingdom. Here's what he says. In that day, the root of Jesse, again, Jesse being David's father, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations, or uh, some uh, in the New Testament that's quoted as Gentiles, outsiders, inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time and uh, to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What he's talking about here is that the people of God are scattered and that God is going to bring them together, okay? God is going to bring them together. In a world that is marked by division, God's kingdom is going to be marked by unity. God's kingdom is marked by unity. And I love this because you don't have to look far in our world right now to see how easily divided everybody is, right? It seems like everyone is divided over every little thing, doesn't it? Like, everyone is offended by something, someone. Um, it's just, it's, you don't have to look, look hard to see that. This world just kind of gives us a lot of stuff to be mad at each other about, right? Um, politics are the worst, but it's, it's all over. It's in other things as well. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a problem. There's just every little thing divides. Every little thing offends. And so what you have are this group mad at this group, this person mad at this person, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of you're the problem, and you see it all over the place. And I would love to tell you that the church is different, but it's often not, right? I've been in church my whole life. Um, you can look at just the history of church. You can look at the fact that there are... Um, well, we'll just say a lot, because I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, of Christian denominations. Most of them got started because this group didn't do this thing the way this group thought that they should. They didn't interpret the Bible the way they thought, and so they start their new, and now there's all these different denominations. And I was actually reading an article this week about one denomination, one denomination that in that one denomination, there's all these sort of versions of this particular, they all have a little bit different lean towards something and they've all kind of split. Well, we're not, like you're the same denomination and yet they're vastly different depending on what church you go to. And that happens across a number of different denominations because at the end of the day, while we would love for the church to be unified, a lot of times it's just not. It's just not. And so one of the things we try, Howard, we're not perfect at this, but we try really hard here. We talk about it a lot. Um, we want to have a really big open hand when it comes to a lot of things. 
We go over this in our membership class. We've talked about it from stage. Um, Yes, there needs to be some stuff in our closed hand that we all agree on. Like if we don't have anything in our closed hand that we stand firm on and we all agree on, then we're probably not a church, right? Like we need to have some stuff that's like, yes, um, we agree on these things. And those are on our website. We go over them in our Discover the Vista. They're very clear. But listen, we need to have a really big open hand as well. And in the open hand, that's, that's all the stuff that like, hey, we don't have to like get mad and leave the church over. We don't have to like take our ball and go home if this, this hand is different than the person sitting next to me, right? And so we try to have a very big open hand and go, yeah, we can have opinions and we can have views, and, but, but they're not hills to die on because God cares about unity and God's kingdom should be marked by unity. So we try really hard to, to do that. In a world where, yeah, we all have our preferences. God's wired us and made us unique. God's wired us and made us different. We're not all going to always like the same things or put emphasis on the same things. That's part of the, the beautiful diversity of the kingdom of God. But in the midst of the differences, we, we still need unity. God cares about unity. In a world that is marked by division, God's kingdom is marked by unity. And I love that here in the Old Testament, he mentions the nations or the Gentiles. Um, The Apostle Paul over in Romans chapter 15, he actually uses Isaiah's words here um, specifically to talk about how God's ministry is also to outsiders, to the Gentiles. Paul, you might remember the great missionary church planter who wrote a lot of the New Testament. His whole ministry was about reaching the Gentiles, the outsiders with the gospel. And so here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 12. He says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles and in him will the Gentiles hope. So Paul took this verse from Isaiah and this idea of the shoot from the stump as an additional, like God's ministry to the Gentiles in the church age as an implication of that verse. Basically that non-Jews will be drawn to Christ and non-Jews will also inherit the kingdom of God. This was part of the problem for the nation of Israel. They thought that God, the real God, the true God, that Yahweh and their Messiah was only for them. He wasn't for everybody else. He was only for them. But what we see here, even in the Old Testament, Isaiah the prophet's making this promise that, no, no, this Messiah, this Savior, this King, he will be for all people. For God so loved the world. That seems pretty all-encompassing, doesn't it? Like God's love is for all. God's love, God's grace, God's mercy. Salvation is not just for one particular race or one particular people group. It, it It is for all people. In a world that is marked by division, God is going to bring his people together. I want to end with this idea. What does this mean for us today as this church? Maybe you've heard this statement before, um, that God's kingdom is both already and not yet. You ever hear that? God's kingdom is both already and not yet. When we say God's kingdom is already, what what we know is that Jesus has already come. The Messiah has already arrived. It's why we celebrate Christmas. It's why we have Advent, right? Jesus has already come. And you, I mean, last week I read a verse from Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus begins his ministry and he starts by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is what? At hand. I'm here, right? 
He's announcing his presence. And so Jesus has already arrived and he, he, he lived his life on this earth and he called some disciples and he taught us how to love and he taught us how to live. And ultimately he goes to a cross and he dies on a cross in our place for our sin, accomplishing the work that the father gave him to do for our salvation. And so in a very real way, the kingdom has been ushered in through the person and work of Christ. However, if you look around, we clearly haven't arrived yet, Right? There is still injustice, there is sinfulness, there is violence, there is division. All of those things that the king is supposed to, you know, make right, clearly that's still present in our world. And so while Jesus has come and ushered in his kingdom, um, clearly we haven't, it hasn't been fully realized yet. One day there will be a second advent. One day the king will come back again. One day he will return, and we look forward to that day because one day all of these things will be fully realized. His kingdom will be fully realized. But until that day, church, what God has for us to do while we're here is to embody these characteristics, to embody the marks of the kingdom of God in a dark world. That's the whole purpose of the church. That, that we live lives differently than the world, that we push back the darkness because we are the light. God working in us, God working through us. That's the purpose of the church. And so what that means is this, that we don't just simply sit back and go, well, injustice is everywhere. I guess one day when Jesus comes back, it'll all be fine. But in the meantime, we just kind of bury our heads in the sand and do nothing about it. No, we are to embody the marks of the kingdom of God now. So we, listen, we stand for justice. We fight for justice. Um, we want justice and fairness. It's why we do missions and ministry, because at the end of the day, we're trying to bring light in dark places. We care about the poor and the needy and the marginalized, and the, because Jesus cared about them. And we don't simply sit back and go, well, one day, you know, heaven will be great. No, what does God have us as a church do about that right now? We don't sit back and think, well, one day, I'll really walk in righteousness and one day I'll really start to live right. And one day, you know, God will take this kind of flesh away from me. And so one day, no, we go, well, God wants us, God cares about how we live right now, that we do our best to walk in righteousness. We live different than the rest of the world because we are embodying the kingdom of God right now. The choices we make, the things that we do that absolutely matter. We don't look around at, you know, all the violence and the hostility in our world and just care nothing about it. We seek to be people of peace now. People of peace now. And maybe you're sitting here going, well, I can't do anything about, you know, the war in the Middle East. I can't do anything about the war in Ukraine. I can't do anything about those things. No, but you can love your neighbor. You can pray for your enemies. You can turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and all the stuff Jesus told you to do, right? We want to be people of peace now because that's what the future kingdom is going to look like. We don't, when it comes to this idea of division and unity, listen, we don't, we don't sit around and go, I, you know, I don't get along with them. They don't get along with me. I don't like what they stand for. I don't like the way they live. I don't like the choices they make. So they're not, they need to get away. Listen, we want to be people of unity now. We want to work towards having unity now in spite of our differences, right? And so in the church, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be, here's what I think about everything in the world, and if you don't agree with me, you're not my friend, <laughs> right? No, it should be, hey, I, I see this differently than you, but man, 
let, let me, help me understand your perspective. Like, let me, let's chat. We can still befriend one another. We can still have relationship with one another, right? We live differently than the rest of the world because God has asked us to be embodying the characteristics of his kingdom while he has us here right now. In a world that is marked by injustice, sinfulness, violence, and division, God has asked us as his church to care about justice and righteousness and peace and unity. And that's our hope, that's our prayer, that's, our, that's what we strive for ultimately, to be faithful to him while we wait for his second advent one day where all of this is fully realized. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are so grateful that we even get to celebrate Christmas, that we even get to, to celebrate and remember um, Advent because you left heaven and you came to this earth to this dark and sinful place to be a light. And Jesus, you came and you, you ushered in the kingdom of God. You are the promised savior. You are the promised king. And you showed us how to live and how to treat people and love people. And ultimately, Jesus, you went to a cross where you gave up your life in our place for our sin. You've taken our sin away so that we can be righteous. So, Father, we just say thank you for that great sacrifice. We thank you for coming to this earth because you didn't have to. We didn't earn it and we don't deserve it. And so, God, we're thankful today that you are king. We're grateful, God, that you have a kingdom. And we pray today that you would help us to embody the marks, the characteristics of your kingdom. As long as you give us breath in our lungs and a heartbeat in our chest, as long as you give us days that we would embody the future and coming kingdom of God and that we would be light in a sometimes very, very dark world. So help us. Help us to be faithful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.